the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Dr. Alex McFarland, our guest tonight. He is a religion and culture expert, author of a new book called Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity, The God You Thought You Knew. That's the title of the book, by the way, the book newly published by Bethany House. You'll find it online at alexmcfarland.com or through the usual suspects, including Amazon. Let's talk about another big one. We often get this argument, and Richard Dawkins, I mean, at all, seem to hammer away the hardest at this, that Christianity and modern science today are completely incompatible, particularly when you look at this from the viewpoint of the origins of man. Mm-hmm. Yes, we get that a lot. Uh, but really, uh, what I always ask when, whenever I hear that is if somehow science has disproven God, I, I say, well, you know, which branch of the sciences are you speaking of? And uh, which scientific discovery? Because, you know, every branch of the sciences, you know, whether you're talking about one of the uh, branches of biology or chemistry or physics or forensic pathology, I mean, there are these sciences, and every every uh, department of the, the sciences has its own, you know, playbook and methodologies. Um, which scientific discovery do you presume has, quote, disproven God? Uh, and, you know, in fact, the, the four basic forces of physics, um, you know, gravity and electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Uh, I was at a luncheon Saturday with a, a couple of very um, esteemed scientists who said, you know, we still really don't know why these things are as they are. Uh, why is the universe uh, structured to sustain life? And they call it the anthropic principle. Why? Uh, the planet Earth seems uniquely fine-tuned for human life. Uh, if anything, the discoveries of science point to the fact that there had to be an intelligent creator to not only uh, cause uh, the origin of matter and the creation of the universe, the beginning of the universe, but to fine-tune, to orchestrate the conditions such that life is possible. So. Uh, in no way has science disproven God. It's disproven God. Uh, in fact, Craig, let me give you let me give you an example. Um, for instance, uh, evolution and most most science departments in American universities and many schools are operated from a com- completely naturalistic uh, presupposition that only the physical empirical world is, is is all there is. But evolution, for instance, which supposedly uh, you know, depends on gene mutations uh, to give all the varieties of life that we see. Uh, well, gene mutations can, uh, you know, rearrange the existing genetic material or cause loss of information, but a mutation doesn't add any new information to the genome. And if you want fins to become feathers and feathers to become fingers, you have to introduce new information to the genome which we've never observed mutations doing. So 
naturalism and specifically uh, Darwinian evolution is, is really a fake position because it's not observable. It never has been. Well, this, in fact, of course, is one of the significant scientific shortcomings of all of this, that oftentimes we've heard uh, these glowing reports of the evidence they find of the uh, the evolutionary chain down through the centuries or millennia, and then we come to more recent recorded time where we have not only a very accurate fossil record, um, we have other records up to including photographic evidence going back over the course of 100, 150 years, and yet there's there's no demonstrative uh, continuity evidence for this evolutionary process, which makes you wonder is if all the evolution took place at the front end, and on the backside here, there's nothing that doesn't make sense. It, it, it's not logical from the standpoint of it seems as if then this this uh, this ability of, of, of the world of creation on the wrong term, I guess, for the evolutionists uh, of the Big Bang to continue to evolve itself seems somehow gotten stuck. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, we learn about the Cambrian explosion, that life appears in the fossil record fully formed. It was my privilege a year ago to spend 11 days in the Grand Canyon, and we saw many, many fossils, uh, including a fossilized um, log, uh, the, the main structure of a tree that was probably 25, 30 feet long, fossilized through, quote, millions of years of strata. That uh, And by the way, I believe the fossil record is the result of the flood. L- let me just say this. I, I definitely do believe in a global flood. I think the topography of the land and the, the Earth's geologic um, structure and makeup um, looks like uh, a worldwide flood. And the fossils were created through uh, rapid burial in the mud, the water, the silt, and intense pressure. But all of the fossils are always complete, fully formed uh, organisms. Uh, the Cambrian explosion, life appears fully formed. Uh, and any of the so-called transitional forms that ostensibly were one species morphing into another, uh, fragments of teeth, fragments of bone, this huge inference that, that I believe is imposed over um, uh, fragments that have been found. And, you know, it's, it's funny how, you know, entire creatures and villages have been constructed out of just some little fragments here and there, and there's wild disagreement uh, and just much speculation about what this or that thing might have been. So the question is, has there ever been uh, empirical, verified proof of evolution? And the answer is no. What's interesting is 156 years into Darwinism now, you know, because... uh, uh, and by the way, I've got I've got Origin of the Species and Descent of Man. I've got a second edition, Descent of Man, and I've got a, um, a sixth edition of Origin of the Species. That in in only twenty years after its first publication, it had been through six or seven printings. Very influential, and basically what we've had for a century and a half uh, have been voices like Richard Dawkins that just insist Darwinism is a fact. Uh, to dare question it is, is ignorance or arrogance. Uh, but the evidence is not there. It's like Jerry Maguire, show me the money. You know, well, show me the evidence. And the evidence is, is just not there. Well, moreover, I mean, not only do we find this, this what appears to be, as you're suggesting, this, 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 this jump in the fossil record that probably requires a greater degree of faith to accept all of that than it does to simply look at uh, the biblical Genesis account of the origins of man, uh, then, too, I've always found it quite curious, and I have yet to have a humanist 
scientist be able to give me a solid answer for this, other short of than just a lot of gobbledygook, when I pose the question. So if we want to prescribe to the Big Bang Theory that suggests that at one point uh, this big explosion took place that created all matter, and you're telling me that out of this then, out of chaos came organization. Why is it there's only one record, according to what you're telling me, of that ever happening? When is the last time you read a story where somebody blew something up and out of it came a building or a bridge uh, or a road was suddenly constructed once they've dynamited some rocks with a with TNT? The fact of the matter is there's 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 no account everywhere, anywhere of destruction, of chaos, creating organization. Uh, That's a great point, Craig. I mean. We have never seen chaos be the mother of order. Something else that is, I mean, I know this is getting rather philosophical, and frankly, I appreciate the chance to talk this way, but uh, we have never observed uh, inanimate matter developing consciousness. Let's just say somehow there was a primordial soup, and we don't know where it came from or how it got there. And let's let's just say somehow some uh, proteins and amino acids uh, evolved and life somehow began, how did consciousness develop? Because, you know, right now if I say two plus two and everybody thinks, okay, four, all right, your, your brain with all of the neurons and synapses, there's the physical tissue that is your brain, but the thoughts that you're thinking and the reasoning, uh, that's not the same as the tissue. So there's, it's what um, scholars call the mind-body problem. We have a body and even if by some, you know, happenstance that evolved, what is the origin of consciousness? A Richard Dawkins, a materialist, has no answer for the origin of consciousness. And then how did um, what we call individuation, how did multiple centers of consciousness develop? Because, you know, you're Craig Roberts, you're thinking your thoughts, I'm Alex McFarlane, I'm somebody different. Uh, there's no, there's no, from an evolutionary standpoint, there's no accounting for uh, consciousness, mind, uh, intelligence, personality. Um, it, it's been said that man is a soulish creature. We're, we're, we're in an evolutionary mindset, just a, a, a moist robot. But we're, but we're not that. There is, there's something that is the real us beyond just the physical tissue. Sure, not only in terms of personality, but things like you're suggesting, like individual choice. I mean, uh, is it conceivable for the bacterium flagellum just to one day wake up and say, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. I think I'm going to go do something differently. Well, it just <laughs> the reality is there's never any evidence anywhere for that ever happening. And you're right, it, 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 for, for Stephen Hawkins, um, uh, Richard Dawkins, it provides a, a tremendous quandary, doesn't it? Well, it really does, and I'm glad you bring up the bacterial flagellum because uh, uh, there's what um, what Michael Behe uh, calls irreducible complexity, that you've got um, a, a motor, a shaft, a propeller, uh, basically bushings, and, and all of these things at an infinitesimally small level in, in the cell, uh, the bacteria has a... a propeller-like tail that can spin at 100,000 rotations per minute and in reverse direction in, in a fraction of a second. And if even one of the parts were not there, uh, it, it would not be functional. So how did 
this irreducibly complex, it's like a mousetrap, seven parts in a mousetrap. If you have even one of the parts missing, it's inoperable. So how did these parts evolve in the absence of the other? Because, see, all of the parts are interdependent. How did they evolve in the absence of the other? Listen, I've had debates and dialogues, and, then, and some of the hardcore evolutionists will say, well, it's an enigma. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Then you are a person of faith. Um, if, if you're willing, all of the things that, you know, when, when your naturalistic worldview hits a wall and can go no farther, they'll say, well, it's an enigma. Okay, well, good for you. Uh, you certainly do have a lot of faith, because we've never, we've never seen something come from nothing. We've never observed uh, chaos bring order. Uh, we've never observed inanimate matter develop consciousness. We've never observed information come from uh, a non-intelligent source, and the DNA is information. So my, my point in this is it's much more plausible uh, when we look at something like the Big Bang. And scholars wonder what was before the, the Big Bang. You know, there was an infinitely dense bit of matter and energy, and it exploded outward in all directions. Uh, well, well, whatever was before the Big Bang that caused the universe, it had to be beyond time, it had to be immaterial, it had to be all-powerful, it had to have uh, in, at least intelligence, because there's so much order and structure in the universe. Um, many have said it, it has to be something uh, analogous to a super-intelligence. Well, when they talk about what was before the universe that was the cause of this great big effect, they're giving the attributes of God. And we say, okay, Big Bang, great. We know who the banger was. Yeah, I uh, one time listened to one of these debates amongst a couple of these uh, scientists going on and on. And uh, after a while, having headed down that very same road, I thought to myself, if this man would just take a moment and take two steps backwards, he'd realize that his attempt to try and explain away how man came to be is actually providing further evidence for the existence of what he calls, uh, you know, something that's the enigma. And we would put... We would assign to that definition as uh, what we know today as God. Our thanks to Dr. Alex McFarland. Some great insights, a wonderful book, one that I think you'll certainly uh, learn about, learn from, and uh, also use as a wonderful tool in sharing your faith with others. The God You Thought You Knew, exposing the 10 biggest myths about Christianity. Newly published by Bethany House. And again, you can get uh, information on the web at alexmcfarland.com or order it online through amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've all been through it. In fact, you might be going through it right now. The pain of not just being offended by the uh, the actions of another individual, but 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 downright injured by their actions. In some cases, it might be intentional, meaning that they are engaging in behavior to intentionally cause harm to you or embarrassment or awkwardness uh, to, to offend you in some fashion. In a majority of the cases, though, it, it's somebody who has not made good choices, not taken into consideration the potential impact of the poor choices that they have made and the ripple effect, like the proverbial pebble in the water, how it travels across, and the further out it gets, the bigger the wave, the greater the impact. Other people's choices can range from careless to cruel to thoughtless to downright depraved. 
The question then for we as believers is, how do you deal with all this? How do you respond to it? Um, how, how do you go about finding hope in the midst of that uncomfortable experience or uh, sometimes life-changing event and at the same token reach down inside of you and be able to extend forgiveness we are reminded in the father's prayer that we should forgive others as we have likewise been forgiven by the lord but sometimes as you're surviving the fallout of other people's choices that's a very tall order Joining us to discuss this is Cynthia Rupti. Cynthia is the author of a brand new book called Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. And Cynthia, great to have you back again. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Well, I'm I'm reading through the new book here, um, Surviving the Fallout of Other People's Choices, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, let me make a list of the people (laughs) Mm -hmm. who maybe didn't intend to, uh, you know, intentionally engage in some behavior or action that would cause fallout or uh, injury back to me, but that was the end result. And trying to work through all of that as you're suddenly finding yourself picking up the pieces of somebody else's mistakes or bad choices. And I guess this runs the gambit of the husband who decides that, uh, you know, playing around on a spouse is an okay thing to do. And as a result, that marriage falls apart because of the infidelity and the children are caught in the wake to, uh, you know, a child who's abusing drugs. And suddenly now you've got grandkids that you now have to raise as your own because your son or daughter, the true parent, is finding themselves, you know, uh, as maybe a, a guest of the state in which you live. Mm-hmm. Tough stuff. And and we all know people like that. They're either within our own families or there has been a season when we've been that person who's been injured by someone else or there are people that we know of in our neighborhood, some of whom don't have the Lord to lean on for their source of hope. It's people that we hear about on the news, but... But all of the stories that are written in the book, uh, Ragged Hope, Surviving the Fallout of Other People's Choices, they're real people, and they're all dear to me. These people are very dear to me. So their courage in sharing their stories, uh, all of our hope is that it will be that those stories will in some way have some impact on helping other people learn how to find those holding on places when it seems like there are none. You know, the tough part of this, I think, for a lot of us is it, it's it's difficult enough sometimes to deal with the fallout of our own poor choices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, Scripture is very clear that the wages of sin is death, um, that, you know, indeed we can find hope and, and forgiveness in a reconciled relationship with God through the work of his Son on the cross on our behalf, paying the price that we should have paid. Um And yet, that doesn't always mean that we escape. While we might escape the eternal consequences of sin, once we find forgiveness in Christ, of course, uh, but that doesn't always mean that we are able to escape the the consequences of sin here on earth. The, The lifelong alcoholic who eventually comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ might well eventually still die from cirrhosis of the liver. That is the consequence of poor choices. But that's on us. It's when it's somebody else's poor choices. And this may not be something, as I mentioned earlier, Cynthia, where they intended to hurt us, but that was the end result. 
it's hard sometimes to dig down and say, Father, I want to forgive them, but wow, look at the mess now. I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly on their cleanup committee, and I don't remember signing up for this. And even beyond that, sometimes the person who is the perpetrator, if we want to use that word, even if it was just an, a, a mistake, a, a truly a, an, an error that they had no intention of making us bear these consequences, sometimes that person's fallout is so little compared to what... And they're oblivious, perhaps, to the, to the harm that they've caused us, or just dismissive. Completely. They may not even care that they caused that kind of a fallout for us. Or they, they've they gone on with their lives. They have no idea the, the impact that has been in our daily lives, every daily decision, the expense financially that we pay, the the price we pay emotionally for what they did. So, and, and then are caring about the, the others that they have left in the aftermath of their unwise choices. It, it really is a heartache that is a, it, it, there's nothing quite like that. There's nothing quite parallel to that. As you said, when we sin ourselves, we go and ask forgiveness. Sometimes we bear the, this tremendous guilt or burden of, of shame because we have caused fallout for someone else. And there's, that's another whole subject by itself, but in this particular instance where I was reminded of what it was like to see that cloud of choking ash come rushing down the street after the Twin Towers fell, and seeing people who were caught up in that cloud, they could not breathe, and they couldn't find a place to breathe. They were covered in the dust and ash of it all, and there was no place they could go to find a place to take a, a breath. That's oftentimes how we feel when we're caught up in the middle of this neck high or higher than that layer of the fallout ash when somebody has made a choice, one of these kinds of choices. Let's give an example of a, a suicide. The pain in the heart and the emotional state and the mental state of the person who chooses suicide thinking that's an out for their own pain has left this trail of despair and heartache behind that they couldn't have imagined and we we know that many of them when they're caught up in a when when a, a suicide um, someone contemplating suicide when they get caught up in that depth of pain and they see no way out they really are not measuring in their minds and their souls and their hearts the kind of fallout there would there will be for the rest of time in the family members that are left behind, those who are aching, wondering what they could have done to have made a difference, those who every holiday is different, every day of their lives are different because of what, because of that choice, that single decision. And you really end up stacking the emotions one on top of another, don't you? I mean, for example, it, it's one thing if we talk about the death of a child. Some listeners in the audience can perhaps relate to what a painful experience that is. I mean, as, as we understand life, um, you meet, fall in love, get married, have a child in that order. They eventually grow up, and then you grow older, and then they bury you. For that to be reversed, not only now does the parent have to deal with loss, but stacked on top of the loss may be resentment from what has been taken away from them, um, anger, 
a sense of maybe even seeing that no wonder the, the, the root of bitterness, it, it finds itself in such fertile soil when you're thinking, how, how can you, we've given you everything as our child, been available to you in every way, and you've suddenly engaged in this most selfish act, mm. and here we are now left in the wake of that. And as I say, Cynthia, I think the challenge here is that oftentimes people people just get caught in this quagmire of, of emotion, and no wonder that this is this can be such a, um, a block even to our relationship with God as we're trying to get all the questions to, uh, or find the answers rather, the questions, many of which perhaps will never be answered. Mm-hmm. So true. We know, and we know from God's Word, that hope can't breathe bitter air. It can breathe despite disappointment and devastation and and that great, deep, piercing heartache, but it gets smothered by hatred and bitterness and anger and resentment and all those things that you were listing. But we're in this place then, if we're in the place of that agony, for us to be told, here's what you should do, is probably going to deepen our despair. If we're told this is, uh, this is what you need and we feel no energy to be able to even grasp the, the offer of hope that is held out to us, that's a very, very difficult place to be. But also we know from our perspective, sometimes that hope we're looking for seems very ragged. It seems like there's practically nothing left to it. From God's side of the picture, it is as strong and as sure as it has ever been. And sometimes the only thing we have to hang on to is clinging to the truth of what we know for sure. I remember when my my um, children were little, and they would be solving, trying to solve a math problem or a science problem, or they would be uh, trying to problem solve something else that was going on in their lives. And it would get more complicated and more tangled. And I often would say to them, let's start with what you know for sure. And it's such a wonderful problem-solving principle. So they would start there at the point of what they knew, and pretty soon as those pieces began to come together, one after the other, of what they knew for sure, what they could trust and believe in, they could get the problem solved. They could get to the end of what they were looking for. Now, we don't want to oversimplify it for the listeners who are thinking, this is, this is a deeper pain than you know, lady. But the truth of the matter is that is where we need to start. What we know for sure, hanging on to the God of hope, the one who even when when we're in the middle of a very vulnerable place and we feel like we're sticking out there and, and all the arrows and darts are aimed at us and we just can't catch our breath, he is still the one who is our source of hope. Sometimes... All we can do is just repeat that to our soul, even as David did in the Psalms, is just tell our soul the truth while we're trying to wade through the worst of this. And a lot of it is coming down to developing the ability to differentiate, because I think a lot of times when we get caught in the middle of this this pain, and there's so much tremendous disappointment mm-hmm. that we kind of assign blame everywhere, including God. Mm-hmm. And it might be true that indeed this individual in our life, it's a spouse, it's a child, it's a sibling, whatever, has broken promises and as a result shattered some dreams. Mm -hmm. But we have to differentiate between their actions and God's actions. Mm -hmm. 
And we do serve a God of hope, even at times when those around us might try to steal hope from us. We'll talk about that when we come back. Cynthia Rukti is with us tonight. Her latest book, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Today we go a bit deeper into surviving the fallout of other people's choices. Wow. We've all been down that road, haven't we? Maybe that sin was not intentionally toward us, but we felt the wake of their bad choices, and we feel as if somehow we're paying their price. Wow. How's that for a sense of injustice? This is like the proverbial automobile accident that damages your car, gives you whiplash, sends you to the hospital, and the drunk driver walked away without a scratch. Where's the justice in that? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. That sense of pain that oftentimes leads to the desire for justice, maybe in the flesh, uh, revenge. It's one thing to suffer from the bad choices that we make, but what happens when somebody else makes a bad choice and the fallout is all on us? We are exploring that today as we look at surviving the fallout of other people's choices with celebrated author Cynthia Rukti. By the way, her most recent book, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Cynthia, let's talk about this. Um, you know, I, it's it's one thing for us to be injured by the poor choices of others, but then suddenly we feel as if oftentimes we're forced to pay the price and they walk away scot-free. Example out of the book, you talk about the couple who has spent their marriage life raising kids. They've made all the sacrifices that loving parents do. They've been there for all the school plays, all the sports games, driven them to, uh, uh, you know, band practice and soccer games and all of that and help them mend, uh, you know, the broken uh, bones when that happened as well, uh, paid to get them through college, were there for them as they were getting married, all of this. And now parents feel as if it's their time. They're going to enjoy uh, their time together. They're going to make plans for what the rest of their life or the second phase uh, post-empty nest looks like, and suddenly they find a major change. They have a child with children um, who, from some poor choices, has decided they either can't, will not, or are incapable of caring for grandkids. And now, all of a sudden, the agenda has changed. Mom and Dad thought they were done raising kids and find out, no, we're about to go into it in the second phase of our life. We probably won't see the golden years of retirement until we reach our early 80s. Wow. And they're not only raising grandkids, they're raising hurting grandkids at the same time, too. So they have this drain on their finances, this drain on their their energies, this drain on the quiet that they maybe felt like they had paid the price to to desert to earn. And here here are these young ones under their care who are changing their daily schedules and changing everything about the way they thought life was supposed to look at that time. They're watching their friends. These grandparents may be watching their friends um, go on golf dates and travel more and all those dreams that they might have had invest a little bit more time in their hobbies than they were able to do while they were raising their own children. But then add to that that tremendously heavy gravity-like layer of concern for these children who are hurting because of the their parents' choices. And that 
is all pulled into this big pool of of disappointment and the cost that these grandparents are having to pay and that is not an uncommon story we we hear about it often these days so there again it's one of those situations where it it can be a life or death situation or it can be one like this where they're just expected to do something and they do it gladly because they love these children and they want the children to be protected and cared for and to know that they are loved in the middle of the the uh, aftermath of what their parents have done or if there there may not have even been a second parent parent in the in the picture at the time so here we are in the midst of this kind of a daily burden that's placed upon us, even if to, to the public we would say, oh, it's not a burden, it's a joy to care for our grandchildren. It's still a drain in many ways. There is a hope there in the middle of it, and, and one, of the, one of the layers of hope is, is that these grandparents oftentimes have to kind of um, almost force themselves to make sure they're not missing the beautiful parts, the beautiful moments in the middle of that story. They have an opportunity to put those children to bed at night and know they're cared for, fed well, they're safe. They have the opportunity to watch some of those moments in their grandchildren's lives that they might not have had if the grandchildren were living with the parents somewhere else. And even though those might seem like uh, small consolations. They are precious, and they do help to pad the pain of what they're going through. And to and and the, another thing that enters in here that I'm I'm not sure I even made clear in the book, but even that idea that the sacrifice that they're making will be rewarded in a huge way by the God that they serve and in the lives of those children as they grow. And, you know, ironically, and, you know, some are going to say, well, that's just sort of a pat answer. Uh, you know, like a time heals all wounds. Sometimes we come up with these uh, these sort of stock or catchphrases that we pull out in the different mom- difficult moments of life. But there is a reality that, uh, as you point out in the book, Jesus, uh, as depicted in not only his ministry on earth as evidence of it, but certainly within uh, the writings of Isaiah, Jesus is a man of sorrows. Um, you know, he he knows what suffering is like. He is another one who suffers because at the hands of others. In fact, here's an amazing thing to put this in perspective. We sometimes, as we're discussing tonight, Cynthia, have to pay the price, pay the penalty for somebody else's poor choices. Uh, few, if any of us, ever sign up for that willingly. Few of any of us ever say willingly, I will take on this. I will pay the price on behalf of a son or a daughter or a spouse or a sibling that's made some poor choices here. And yet Jesus did so willingly and knowingly that he ultimately paid the price for our sins, Mm -hmm. our mistakes. And so if there's anybody who can really relate to what we're experiencing, it's Jesus himself, isn't it? And I think that's key to our own survival in the middle of these things is knowing that the depths of God's understanding are limitless and that Jesus very well does know what that feels like to be paying a penalty he did not deserve on behalf of people that he loved. I was reading just today in Isaiah, um, it, it had a beautiful description of someone who feels like they're um, 
in such a vulnerable place. They're an easy target. They're easy prey that, that the troubles that have come upon them have made them feel like they're standing on a high hill all alone. And you can imagine that if you're in the middle of a war, what that would be like to be in that position. And that's oftentimes what it feels like then to us. That, um, that the verse in Isaiah 30, uh, 18 says, Nonetheless, the Lord is waiting to be merciful to you and will rise up to show you compassion. The Lord is a God of justice. Happy are all who wait for him. There's so much in that short verse, so much there, for us to know that God is a God of compassion. He longs to be merciful to us. He will rise up. He will show us his compassion and that he is a God of justice. And the joy lies in for those who will wait for him to exact that justice as we lean into him, as we, as we lean into this, this one who not only knows our sorrows but feels them to, to the very depths of his being and cared so much about them that he would provide a way for us to know freedom from what, what we should have borne in our own selves, but also that he would care enough to come alongside of us when we're hurting. He comforts, not, but not only comforts, he binds up those wounds that we have, the Bible tells us. And yeah, sometimes those, those, even a verse, a scripture verse, can sound like a pat answer. And that's not what we're trying to, to say here. We're trying to just point ourselves, and I'm talking to myself even as I say this too, point ourselves to the source of our true hope. Sometimes it's a bare, like, fingernail-like grip that we get on the hope that will that will help get us through these times and we're we're not saying that this is a that it's easy by any stretch in fact i tried very hard in the book to not make any of the readers the potential readers of the book feel that they were being um cast that their that their despair was being um disallowed, that that it was being made light of, not in any way. Um, there's a beautiful verse in Jeremiah, too, that where God is saying, because my people are crushed, I'm crushed. Darkness and despair overwhelm, and they certainly do. I, I use this verse often from Jeremiah. They treat the wound of my people as if it were nothing. All is well, all is well, they insist, when in fact nothing is well. This is the same God. The same God who says he is the God of hope is telling us, I, I get it. Believe it or not, I understand what this pain is like that you're feeling. And I have a huge heart of compassion and understanding. So here's, here's the big challenge. As, as much as you're suggesting that we do not want to be dismissive, the pain, the disappointment is real. Mm-hmm. And yet oftentimes, I think one of the biggest roadblocks to hope, as we're discussing, is this root of bitterness. When we come back after a brief time out, we'll ask Cynthia to give us some insights in terms of how do we go about, like, removing that ugly weed in the garden that seems to just come back again and again and again and takes over everything to the point where our our eyes go to the weed first instead of seeing the beautiful rose that sits behind it. How do we go about getting to that root of bitterness and cutting it out so that hope can spring forth? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. This report is sponsored by Mattress Firm. 
In Alamo, northbound 680, right before Lavorna Road, we had a crash involving an SUV and a pickup. That's been cleared from the lanes, but traffic is still stop and go from Sycamore Valley Road. San Jose, southbound 101, just before the Capitol Expressway, heads up, there's a large chain reported in the middle lanes. Traffic at a stop in San Francisco, uh, northbound 101, Cesar Chavez to the 8101 split, and then it's pretty much at a stop from uh, the 8101 split onto about 1st Street on the Skyway. Eastbound Highway 4 in Concord. Traffic at a stop. Pacheco Boulevard to Port Chicago Highway. That's traffic. Mattress Firm's 4th of July sale has been extended for a limited time. Shop and save up to $500 on top-rated mattress brands like Sealy and Sleepies. Plus, get a free adjustable base with your $999 mattress purchase. Even those who serve God need a strong retirement plan. MMBB Financial Services understands the unique demands of ministry. We offer flexible, affordable retirement plans for your church or faith-based organization. To learn more, visit our website, mmbb.org, or call 866-860-1293. That's 866-860-1293 or mmbb.org. Meet Tim. Hey, what's up? He's the person you hired for your digital marketing, and when he's done battling aliens on his PS5 in his parents' basement, he'll get right to work. Now, meet the team at Salem Surround. What's up? These are the people who are passionate about your success and will work 24-7 to deliver real customers to you and your business. Why would you trust your digital marketing to one person when you can hire a whole team? Get nationwide experience, resources, and results. Learn more at surroundsanfrancisco.com. Buying a home is a great leap of faith. Before you take that leap, be sure to catch Faith in Home Buying, the program that equips people of faith for the home buying process. I'm your host, Tamika Ellsworth, and when we give God our mustard seed, He will move mountains, making the impossible possible. So get practical advice, reliable insight, and useful knowledge on Faith in Home Buying. Saturday mornings at 9.30, right here on AM 1100 KFAX. Jordan Michaels here. You know, getting a good night's sleep is so important, and the people at MyPillow want you to have the best sleep you can possibly have. Inventor of MyPillow, Mike Lindell, created the best pillow, yes, but he didn't stop there. He did the research. He found the world's best cotton. It's called Giza, ultra soft, breathable, and extremely durable. So Mike has created Giza Dream Sheets, and I've had a couple of sets of these sheets for a few years now, and they're the only ones I use. They look and feel great, and you know, once you try them, you're not going to want to sleep on anything else. They come in a variety variety of sizes and colors. And right now, Mike has a great offer for our listeners, two sets of Giza Dream Sheets for the price of one. And of course, a 60-day money-back guarantee and 10-year warranty and free shipping. Call 800-479-1790. Use the promo code KFAX or visit MyPillow.com. Click the radio listener square. Use that promo code KFAX and prepare to have some of the best sleep of your life. MyPillow.com, promo code KFAX. The following statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. Amberin trials tested mild to moderate symptoms. Testimonial is based on 90 days of use. Results may vary. IRI US Mulo, 52 weeks by UPC. Hi, I'm Mary Lou Retton, and I want to talk to you about something I haven't liked to talk about until now, my menopause. All my life, I've had energy, energy to win gold in 84. But when menopause hit me with the hot flashes and night sweats, I began to feel sluggish every day. That all changed when I discovered Amberin. Amberin safely relieves 12 menopause symptoms by helping to restore your hormonal balance. Amberin is 100% drug-free, estrogen-free, and clinically tested. Amberin is America's number one menopause relief supplement. Thanks to Amberin, my fear of hot flashes is gone. My sheets aren't soaked every night, and my energy is back. 
Give Amaranth a try and see what it can do for you. It works. It really works. Hurry to your Walmart, Walgreens, Target, and other fine retailers nationwide and get Amaranth today. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Best-selling author Cynthia Rupti with us today. Her latest book, by the way, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Abington Press, and, of course, you can also get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and through uh, Cynthia's website, which is, get the right piece of paper here, Craig, CynthiaRupti.com. That's spelled Cynthia, R-U-C-H-T-I, Dot com. All right, let's talk about doing some gardening. Um, boy, in the middle of these experiences, Cynthia, as much as we're trying to find hope, hang on to hope, that root of bitterness can sometimes go very, very deep and be that major blockage that really prevents us from being able to get victory. How do we go about finding it and cutting it right at the root? I think if bitterness helped at all, Jesus would advocate for it. He would have told us in his word that, yes, let bitterness have its full work in you. And he's saying so much the opposite of that. We we know very well the kinds of things that don't work and where we're not going to find hope in the middle of, of our pain and our distress. One, one clear thing is that if we let our pain define us and mold us into something that's uglier than the circumstances are. Um, hope loves light, but if we pull the curtains around ourselves and label ourselves as the broken one or the too young widow or the motherless or the addict or the jilted, we're making it harder to find that hope that our souls crave. Same thing happens with our taking it out on others. If we challenge ourselves to think, who is it that really grew more hopeful by taking out their pain on other innocent people? We wouldn't be able to find anyone. If we allow the bitterness and the disappointment to dictate what our life is going to look like, not only is the person who caused the pain getting yet another victory, especially if it was intentional, if that pain was intentional, but we're draining the energies that we need for survival. We can tell when bitterness has taken root if our thoughts go to the action against us or the mistake that was made or the, or the person who got us into this position more often than our thoughts are going toward hope and healing and what's my next step. If we get mired in a place where we're not thinking thoughts like, what's my next step, or God, help me take the next step, then we know that bitterness has probably taken a pretty deep root within us. <sighs> this is something that a lot of people struggle with. And well, we in do. addition to that bitterness, there's also that sense that we call it justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes it means revenge. Uh, we want to somehow settle the score. Uh, I made reference earlier to the notion of the drunk driver who uh, may be in the process of their going out for a nice party, gets on the road when they shouldn't. They hit us. We have either suffered permanent physical injury, maybe even loss of life. They get up and walk away scot-free. And even on top of that, it could have been hit and run that not only did they get away scot-free in their own physical injuries, which were none or minor, but they may have even left the scene. And we're left with all of this. And there's no one caught, in a way, no one who's paying a price, even legally, for what has happened to us. 
if when we look through the stories that God included in His Word, it's remarkable to see how many times it's a situation just like that, where someone makes a decision, someone makes a bad move, and then here are all these people that are trying to live in the consequences or the fallout or the aftermath of those things. What Just knowing that God thought that those stories were worth including in His Word gives a certain measure of hope in the middle of this also. But honestly, when we look at the the um, the hurting one, let's take someone who is, let's take ourselves out of the picture and imagine that it's a friend of ours, and we're trying to go and comfort that friend. We know that there's very little that we could do or say. So the words are so inadequate at a time like this. And certainly if we try giving them a three-point plan or um, six ways that you can find hope again in the middle of this, and here, here's this specific antidote to bitterness. We're going to be met with resistance as we try to do that. But like Job's friends did, if we go and sit beside the person, that's when Job's friends were being the smartest and the most comfort. There was someone that I was speaking with just the other day that was just at a loss as to how to help their, their friend who was just mired in this pool of bitterness, and every word that came out of her friend's mouth was full of venom toward what had been done to her. And at the time, it was, it was a hard thing for her to go and sit beside her friend and listen to that, but it was in the listening and the spilling out of it to this trusted friend that eventually she started to to unload enough that she was able to allow just a breath of space for something else to come in and fill that spot up. We rehearse our pain sometimes to an excess. Sometimes we rehearse our pain and the the bitter feelings that we have, the resentment that we have so much that we grow hoarse. And the voice that comes out when we're that hoarse is even more despairing, and and despair feeds upon despair. It begets more despair. It's not helping our situation, but we feel like it's the natural thing to have happen. It may be natural, but it's still a decision. When waves of bitterness are coming at us, naturally coming at us, if we stand in the way and we don't move out of the way of that wave of bitterness, we shouldn't be surprised if we get swept off of our feet by that wave. And understanding, I think, at the end of the day, that God is still ultimately in control mm-hmm. can be very reassuring. Sometimes in the flesh and the secular, they say, well, there's karma. You know? mm-hmm. And what goes around comes around, whatever, whatever the phrase du jour is. At the end of the day, none of this escapes God. Certainly the pain that we are suffering has not escaped Jesus. He can likewise relate to our pain. And at the end, God is in control of everything, and I think that's the biggest place where we can lean. And as we lean on him, then we begin to surrender that bitterness and say, okay, God, I'm not in charge here. I'm not going to meter out justice. I'm just going to trust you and move forward and not allow this bitterness to end up consuming me, because at the end of the day, the other person that you're angry or bitter toward, they don't even know it. They go la-di-da about their business. Sometimes they have no clue that they've even injured you or wounded you as deeply as they have. You know, it's interesting that if, if we're tempted to pull away from God at a time like that, 
we are pulling away from the only one who has any power to affect change in our circumstances or in us. We're pulling away from that hope expert, the one who created it and maintains it for us at his own expense, and the one who remains our only source of lasting and genuine and tenacious and durable hope. So pulling away from God at a time like that is going to allow that bitterness to take a deeper root within us. And then, just like the weeds in the garden, the ones with those deep, horrific tap roots that go down so far that you can chop at it with a hoe and and you're going to only remove the top and then it will creep right back up again, stronger than ever before. But you have to dig with a shovel and sometimes dig way down deep to root that out. And when we're in a place of such vulnerability, when we're so tender in the middle of that pain, the, the best that we can do is just that simple act of leaning toward him rather than leaning away from him. And when he sees that happening, he responds to us. And he, and he is like a, like a parent when a child gets a, it's an injury. The parent's first response isn't, I told you not to ride your bike without your knee pads. The, the parent instead opens his arms or her arms wide and welcomes that child into his embrace. Then, when the child is comforted, the parent says, okay, let's take a look at that knee. And that's so the way that God is with us. We've seen this before. We know it to be true. But it's such a picture that I I long to have become so rooted in my own life that it's my first response. It's my default response is to realize that when I'm hurt and injured, God is flinging his arms wide open, longing for me to come running into his embrace. I lean against him. He comforts me. And then we'll take a look at the injury and see what that was. Surviving the Fallout of Other People's Choices. Our thanks to Cynthia Rukti for being with us tonight. Her latest book, by the way, is called Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul, newly published by Abington Press, available at the usual suspects, including Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Thanks, Cynthia, so much for the time. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.